kidding. Sorry. Good morning. Uh, we're reading today from Matthew, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. <clears throat> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it, we saw his star when it rose and came to worship him. Then Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I need to begin by apologizing specifically to my daughter, Abigail. Abigail, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm going to ruin Christmas again. She complains that every year I ruin Christmas, and maybe I don't, maybe I don't ruin Christmas itself, but I do have a little bit of a beef with these guys because they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be here. I'm not going to ruin Christmas, but we are going to talk about these guys and why they shouldn't be there, and where they should actually be. You see, the Bible reveals that these travelers, despite what the carol that we regularly sing says, they weren't kings. They weren't kings. The Bible never actually calls them kings. We find that the people that Vicky just read to us about, that they were, they were magi. They, they had wealth and knowledge to travel far, and they could lavish gifts. They had knowledge about the stars. But this word that's used to describe the magi, it's used elsewhere in the Bible, and when it's used elsewhere in the Bible, it's actually translated as magician in Acts 13. So, so these, were, these were people that had some knowledge of the stars and some knowledge of things that were happening. They were wealthy, but they were definitely not kings. They might have worked for kings. They might have been sent by kings, but they themselves were not kings. These were Persian priests scholars, astrologers, magicians, and the truth is, if you come up here and count, you're going to find three of them there, just as you're going to find in so many other nativity scenes, but we don't know how many of them showed up to worship the newborn king. Now, the word magi, as Vicky, Vicky read for us, is plural, so we know there were at least two of them, and the Bible tells us there were three gifts given. But the Bible never actually tells us how many gift givers showed up that night. 
And, and the biggest error that we make is putting the wise men in the stable scenes like we did up here. Because as we just read, in Ma- as Vicky just read for us in Matthew 2, verse 11, it says the Magi visited a child, not a baby. And it says that they were going into a house, not a stable. So they weren't there on the night of Jesus' birth. In fact, the truth is, the Magi might have visited as much as two years after the birth. Which is implied by the fact that if we had kept reading in Matthew 2.16, it says, King Herod, when he heard about this, he commanded that all of the male children who were two years old or under, according to the time they had ascertained from the wise men, all of them be killed, two years old and under. Not just newborns, but two years old and under. So these were not kings. They weren't, there weren't necessarily three of them. And they didn't arrive at the stable that first Christmas evening. So Christmas has been ruined. I'm sorry, Abigail. You're welcome. So in order to stop perpetuating these incorrect beliefs, starting next week, we're going to replace the familiar carol, We Three Kings. We're going to replace it with the more accurate, we indeterminate number of priestly Persian scholars who arrived two years after Jesus' birth. From Orientar, bearing gifts who travel so far. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a mouthful, but I think you'll get it eventually. Now, even if the traditional Christmas carol, you can take that down, thanks, Samuel. Even if the traditional Christmas carol and our nativity depictions misunderstand these magi, what I don't want you to misunderstand today is the joy of the magi. Because that's what we're talking about today. We lit the candle of joy. Today is the Sunday of joy, and I want you to understand the joy of the Magi, because, friends, this is our joy as well. We may misunderstand when they arrived or how many of them there were, but don't misunderstand why they arrived. Because of joy. Friends, we are creatures driven by joy. Joy is written into our DNA. It's the very fiber of our being. Joy is like a compass that draws us to the true north. We're like moths drawn to a flame of joy. We are joy-driven people. But you already know this because you've seen joy cause people to do ridiculous things. You know, there are some people, not myself, but there are some people who find joy, for example, in football. They set aside Sunday afternoons and some weeknights to watch football. And without complaining, they might even spend incredible amounts of money on tickets and official team jerseys. And they might navigate gridlocked traffic, endure long lines, security screenings, purchase overpriced food, and sit outside in frigid temperatures. Sometimes they even need to shovel off their seats before they can sit down. Would you do all that to get here for Sunday morning? I mean, how many duties... Do you opt out of when it becomes inconvenient or or too cold or expensive? So these people who love football, this isn't mere duty or obligation. Because duty and obligation are powerless to cause us to do that type of stuff. It's delight. We are joy-driven people. And so to those of us who find no joy in football, people like Kevin, Karen, Sandy, and Candy, and others look a little crazy sometimes. I'm calling you out. Now, I might find no joy in football, but last Saturday on December 5th, I did run the Millinocket Marathon, as some of you know. And following the race, I was waiting for the shuttle bus, and I stood there with my family in sweat-saturated clothes, quickly freezing in the 15-degree temperature, 
I was exhausted. My muscles were sore and stiffening. And I said to my family, this is so dumb. Why would anyone willingly run 26.2 miles if they're not being chased by a bear? Out of duty? Out of obligation? No, it's joy. Joy makes us do ridiculous things. The early mornings, the frigid temperatures, the expense, the suffering. We're joy-driven creatures. Joy motivates us to take ridiculous risks, to spend lavishly, to inconvenience ourselves, to sacrifice. You might not find joy in running or in football, but there's something in your life that you find joy in, and you are driven towards that thing, aren't you? It could be the joy of seeing the midnight premiere of your favorite movie franchise. The joy of owning a house, a boat, a car. The joy of achieving a goal or completing that project. The joy of being spoken well of or admired by others. The joy of being accepted by this group or those people. The joy of achieving this financial goal or saving that much money. We are joy-driven people. And that which we find joy in, we are driven to pursue. We take ridiculous risks. We spend lavishly. We inconvenience ourselves greatly. We sacrifice willingly. And that's what the Magi did, isn't it? Isn't that what the Magi did? They pursued joy. It says the Magi came from the east. Now, the east was generally a large area, a vast area of Mesopotamia, and so we're not exactly sure where they started from, but their journey was probably somewhere between 400 and 800 miles. In the Old Testament book of Ezra, Ezra 7-9 records that the journey from Babylon in the far east to Jerusalem took nearly four months. So their journey was long, hundreds of harsh and unforgiving miles. It was dangerous. Thieves roamed the desert places because there were no police out there looking to take advantage of travelers unaware and unprepared. It was inconvenient. There were no paved roads. There were no hotels. There were no restaurants. Travel was uncomfortable. They were exposed to all of the weather, traveling on foot, maybe on camel. And it was expensive. The cost would have been astronomical. And you had to bring everything with you because there were no banks along the way. The entire journey, you wouldn't have been earning any money either. So what would motivate such ridiculous risk, lavish spending, burdensome inconvenience, exceptional discomfort, and tremendous sacrifice? Obligation? Duty? No. Joy. We are joy-driven creatures. And friends, there is no greater joy than the one that came that first Christmas. Remember, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, they declared, Fear not, for behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's news not of duty, but of delight. This is good news of great joy, because we naturally pursue joy. We risk for joy, we work for joy, we sacrifice for joy, we're joy-driven people. And friends, consider the joy of the Magi. As Vicki read for us about their joy in Matthew 2, verse 10, when the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's one of the most ridiculous statements in the Bible. That's like saying they ate with a lot of much eating. They walked with a lot of much walking. What's going on? Did, did Matthew forget how to write? 
No, Matthew was trying to express just how much joy, how exceeding it was, how it was overflowing from them. Friends, it's unnecessarily redundant because he's trying to express just how much joy these magi had in pursuing Jesus. These wise men were willing to sacrifice the joy of their wealth, the joy of their possessions, and sacrifice that for the joy of having Jesus. They were willing to sacrifice the joy of having the freedom to do what they wanted with their time for the joy of pursuing Jesus. They were willing to sacrifice the joy of their comfort and their convenience for the joy of having Jesus. They were willing to sacrifice the joy of their leisure to pursue the joy of Jesus. We are joy-driven creatures. And friends, our problem, our problem is not that we don't have joy. Our problem is that we're satisfied with lesser joys. Our problem is not that we don't have joy. Our problem is that we're satisfied with lesser joys. Because we're all pursuing something that we believe is ultimately going to give us joy. You might be looking to a time that's going to give you joy. Once Christmas comes, I'll have joy. Once I retire, I'll have joy. It could be a state of being. Once I'm married, then I'll have joy. Once I have a child, then I'll have joy. Once I have a new job, then I'll have joy. Maybe it's an achievement. Once I've accomplished this degree or finished this project, I've gotten this promotion or this recognition, then, then I'll have joy. It could be a possession. Once we own our own home, or maybe I've saved so much in the bank, or I have this much put away to retirement, then, then I'll have joy. And friends, none of those things in and of themselves is bad. The danger is when one of the lesser joys becomes your ultimate joy. The danger is when a lesser joy in our life becomes the ultimate joy of our life. When you say, I can't have joy because I don't have a husband, a baby, a house, an achievement, or anything else, you've exalted a lesser joy to the place of ultimate joy. And when a lesser joy becomes your ultimate joy, friends, that becomes a problem. Because then, then when you and I don't have one of those lesser joys, it can make us bitter and cause us to wallow, to reject the pursuit of joy altogether. Well, if I don't have the thing that I wanted, if I don't have the thing that I thought I need for joy, then I'm I'm not even going to pursue joy at all. I just can't have it. Or, Or when a good or a lesser joy becomes our ultimate joy, that pursuit distracts us. It distracts us from the pursuit of what should be our ultimate joy. And we abandon and we miss Friends, the greatest of joys that causes us to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Friends, the problem with lesser joys is not that they're bad. The problem with these lesser joys is that they can't give us ultimate, lasting, unyielding joy. They can't give us what we most need. Real joy. Eternal joy. These good things become dangerous things when they threaten our pursuit of ultimate joy. And the Magi, they decided the joy of wealth, the joy of comfort, the joy of leisure, the joy of convenience. They decided they were not of greater value than the joy of pursuing the one who was born. Because if they thought, well, the joy of my wealth is more important, they wouldn't have started out on their journey, would they? And they never would have gained such lasting joy as in Jesus. And friends, the question for us is, are we in that same danger today? 
You see, Jesus Christ was born to bring us joy. Friends, He's not just a joy. Jesus didn't come to be just another joy for you to put on the shelf beside your other joys in life. He's come to be the joy. He's come to be the joy that ruins us for other joys and that reorients us to every other joy in this world. You know, that was the point. When the baby who was born on Christmas grew, He taught us many things. And one of the things that He taught us was a parable. In Matthew chapter 13, which is all about joy. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44, says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Friends, these are both parables of great joy, not begrudging obedience or obligation or duty. It's delight. In joy, he sells all that he has. Friends, Jesus has come not just to be one more pearl added to your collection. Jesus has come not just to be one more treasure that you put on the shelf with other treasures. Jesus has come to reorient your life. He's come not just to be another planet in your solar system. He's come to be the sun. And to reorient all the other planets around Him. He has come to be the joy around which all of your other joys revolve. Jesus is the joy that has come to reorient you. Just like the two men in the parable. Their lives were reoriented. Everything else that once brought them joy, they sold. For the joy of having the pearl. For the joy of having the treasure. Jesus has come to put all other joys in their rightful places. And that explains many of Jesus' teachings. For example, his shocking statement in Luke 14, verse 26, where he says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, my follower. Jesus isn't saying family is bad. But he's saying the joy of having him is greater. Friends, the joy of having him is greater and the pursuit of that joy must make us willing to forsake all other joys. Jesus offers us unspeakable joy, a joy that utterly ruins us for and reorients us to all other joys in our life. I've shared before the story of author Rosaria Butterfield who describes herself before meeting Christ as a leftist lesbian professor in English and women's studies. She wrote, I lived as a lesbian. I delighted my lover, our home in one of the Finger Lakes, our golden retrievers in our careers. But then she met Jesus. And the joy of finding him reoriented everything else in her life. And she writes, the gospel gave me a light that was ruinous. It ruined me for the life that I had once loved. You see, the the, the light of the joy of the gospel, it was ruinous. The joy of Jesus ruined the taste that she had for all other things because Jesus came, ruined her for other joys, and reoriented her around himself. And like the worker in the field, like the pearl merchant, she sold all to have the joy of Jesus. Now those around the pearl merchant and the man who bought the field, they must have thought that they were crazy, just like Rosaria Butterfield's friends thought she was crazy. 
Because they gave up everything. They sold all the years of labor, the homes, the treasures, the fields, bags of expertly found pearls, all of them gone. Things that the whole world, that all their friends said are so valuable. These are the things we find joy in. These are the things worth pursuing. They said, not anymore. Because I found a better joy. I found a joy that has become the center of my solar system. And it's reoriented every other joy in my solar system. They now all revolve around this joy. All these other things, they are worth less than that joy that is at the center. And that's the joy of Jesus. Because, friends, Jesus came. Be warned. If you've never met Jesus, be warned. He's come to ruin your life. He has come to ruin you for and reorient you to every other joy in your life. He's come to turn it all upside down. That's what we sang this morning. We sang words from the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 3. We sang together, All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I've counted as loss. It's spent. It's worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. All of a sudden, those things that I thought were so valuable that that used to bring me joy, that I used to pursue, they're spent, they're worthless compared to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. And like Rosaria Butterfield, like the men in the parable, like the Magi from the East, like the Apostle Paul, the true joy ruins you to all other joys. They're worthless. They're rubbish compared to the joy of Jesus. Paul declares that the joy of Jesus reoriented him and the joy of pursuing and knowing Christ drove his life. Did you hear that? My heart's desire is to know you more. It's not my obligation, not my duty, my heart's desire. Friends, the good news of Christmas is that Jesus was born to change our heart's desire. He has come to rejoy us. So that our hearts rejoice in Him. He has come to rejoy us. That our hearts rejoice in Him and Him alone. Because our hearts need to be rejoyed. Because we rejoice in all the lesser things. We stand in danger of missing true joy. Because we're pursuing and demanding that other things give us joy. So Jesus has come to rejoy us. To ruin us to those other things that we think we're going to find joy in. And reorient us so that we rejoice in Christ as our ultimate joy. That He becomes our treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. And so the question is, is Christ your joy this morning? And you might say, well, Adam, what if He's not? What if He's not my joy? And I begin by asking... Well, if you never have, have you invited Him to become your joy? Because the Gospel, the good news of Christmas, is that Jesus has come not to give us a job, but to give us joy. Understand, Jesus has come not to give us a job, but to give us joy. To be a follower of Jesus is not a religion, a job we do. It's a joy that we receive. And Jesus has come to give us joy. The Magi came from afar so that the joy might be theirs. And friends, if you never have, I invite you to come and to receive the joy. So that you, like them, might rejoice exceedingly with great joy. 
The angels announced that night of his birth that it is good news of great joy for all people, which means it's for you. So I'd invite you first by faith to trust and receive Jesus. Invite him to become your joy, to ruin you, and to reorient you to all the other joys, to forgive your sin, to free you from the pursuit of all these other wrong joys, to forgive your pursuit of the wrong joys, and to forgive how you pursued even the right joys wrongly. Invite Jesus to become your joy. And friends, if you have done that, and if you want to do, well, if you want to do that, I would love to pray with you after the service or talk to you this week so that you might know the joy of Jesus. But maybe you're saying, Adam, I have done that, but I'm still struggling to have joy in Jesus. How do I have joy in him this Christmas season and beyond? And I would invite you to just like the Magi did, pursue joy. Friends, pursue joy. Now, Pastor John Piper has written extensively about this in many of his books, but especially in in a book that's influenced me titled, When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. Think about that. How to Fight for Joy? Isn't that a weird title? I mean, how often do we think about that? Fight for Joy? Friends, we don't think about fighting for joy, do we? But the truth is, we must. Now, we can't force or manipulate feelings, but friends, joy is more than a feeling. Not mere cheerfulness or jollity. Joy is something that can be pursued. And church, we need to pursue, to fight for joy. You know, you know this because you've experienced this in your life. You know, in my life, years ago, for example, I took no joy in yogurt. And I know it's a funny thing, but I couldn't stand the texture. And it was kind of weird. And I just took no joy in it. Well, I can't remember what started me eating it. But now, I eat it every morning and I love it. Years ago, I took joy in McDonald's. In fact, so much so, my parents used to joke, you know, I think your father was probably Ronald McDonald. Because I loved going there and every opportunity I had, I stopped in. But now, I take no joy in it and I rarely ever go. Years ago, I had no joy in running. And today, I find joy in a daily run. Friends, the point is, we can choose to pursue, to fight for, or against a joy. We can, we can expose ourselves in such a way that we build or move away from a joy. John Piper wrote in his book, Therefore, there's no more important struggle in the universe than the struggle to see and savor Christ above all things. The struggle for joy. Friends, there's no more important fight, no greater pursuit than to find joy in Jesus. And how do we do it? Well, King David instructed in Psalm 34, 8 and said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, especially when they were younger. How many times did I offer my kids a food and they go, I don't like that. And I'd say, have you tasted it? No, but I don't like that. Well, of course you're not going to like it. You've never tasted it. Friends, the fact is, we develop a taste for those things that we regularly eat. I mean, how many foods in your life did you begin with with absolutely no taste for, but then you ate it again and again to the point that you realized, I'm not just tolerating this food, I actually really kind of like it. And now I'm desiring it. I mean, how many experiences in your life did you not enjoy at first, but after doing it over and over and over again, what was once unpalatable to you has actually become enjoyable to you? Friends, you can fight for joy. 
You can, but you must decide what joys are worth fighting for. What tastes are worth developing. You know, when I sit down in the morning with, by myself at the breakfast table with a cell phone in one hand and my Bible in the other hand, friends, when I choose my cell phone, I have decided that the joy from scrolling through my Facebook feed is going to be more than the joy I'm going to find in pursuing Christ in His Word. When I decide to stay home on a Sunday morning, when any of us decide to stay, I guess I don't have an option. <laughs> when we decide to stay home on a Sunday morning, we decide that the comfort, convenience, or whatever alternative activity in which we've chosen to engage is going to give us greater joy than pursuing God with His gathered people. When I decide to be silent about Christ or His truth amongst my friends, I've decided that their approval is going to give me greater joy than pursuing God's glory and sharing His gospel. When I decide to do whatever I desire regardless of what God's Word says, I've decided that fulfilling my desires is going to give me greater joy than pursuing God by obedience to His commands. Church, we have to fight for joy. We need to develop a taste for Him. We need to feast daily upon His Word so that we develop a taste for Him. We need to seek His face in prayer, meditation, and stillness so that we increase that longing for His face. We need to gather regularly with His people so that we develop a love for His presence among His people. We need to obey even when we don't want to so that we learn the utter sweetness of His commands. We need to trust Him even when He seems silent and distant so that we learn to savor His nearness all the more. Friends, we have to fight for joy. We have to fight for joy. Because if we start off and say, I don't have any joy in Him, I don't have any taste for Him, so I'm not going to partake in all, then friends, I promise you will never develop a taste. You will never grow a joy. And in fact, your soul will shrivel. Your soul will shrivel until you find no joy in Him at all and you're going to settle your life for just running after lesser joys that will ultimately never satisfy. Like the Magi, like the men in the parables and the treasure in the pearl, like the Apostle Paul, give up any other joy that hinders or distracts and fight to find joy in Jesus. And finally, you might say, Adam, okay, this is still, this fighting for joy thing is not working for me, because joy is a gift. I mean, how, how do you fight for a gift? Friends, joy is a gift. So what I'm saying is go to the gift giver. If joy is a waterfall, I'm saying extend your hands and cup them and bring them to your mouth so that you can drink of the sweetest of water. You didn't make that waterfall. You don't cause it to flow, but you can go to it. And drink deeply of it. Joy is a grace. It's a gift. So pursue it. Fight for it that you might possess the gift. As author Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And joy is not earned. It is free. It is a grace. It is a gift. And the pursuit itself is empowered, made possible by His grace. But we have to choose to fight for joy, to extend our hands that we might receive. So hear the invitation. Come. 
Pursue Jesus that He might rejoy you this Christmas season. Taste and see that He is good. Invite Him to ruin you and reorient you to all other joys. That He might become the ultimate joy, the center of your solar system. That He might rejoy us. That we might rejoice in Him. Friends, where this Advent season is your joy. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us that we might find our joy in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Help us that our hearts might be reoriented to Him. That He might become the center. That all other joys might diminish as He increases. That all other loves might lessen as He grows greater. May You Father, by the power of your Spirit, rejoice us and help us, give us strength in our fight for joy. So that we can say, as the closing song says, Come rejoice now, my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear's gone, hope is sure. Why? Because Christ is mine. He's my joy, my treasure forevermore. Rejoice us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In closing, please stand and sing with us, Christ is mine forevermore. Song we have